This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Picking up where we left off, folks. Part two of this final fugue episode. No time to waste. The final episode of season one. I've planted a seed in your brain just before the last episode finished. And hopefully by now, it is the tree of the idea of the golden section and using our knowledge of what Bach was doing in the golden sections in his other fugues around the same time as the Art of Fugue. And then wondering if we can use that information to make an educated guess about where the golden section might be in this 14th final fugue. We don't know because we don't have the ending of the fugue, so we can't simply take the number of bars in the fugue and multiply it by 0.618 to get there. So we start by asking ourselves, well, what does Bach normally do in his golden sections? We could honestly say sometimes, in fact, he does nothing. There are plenty of fugues in the well-tempered clavier that have no golden sections, which is to say that 61.8% of the way through the work, nothing particularly notable happens. I'm having a flashback to the episode about the 11th fugue, where we found that the golden section in that work, nothing particularly decisive happened. But if we calculated the golden section from the end rather than the beginning, we did find something interesting. But that sort of anti-golden section, I called it, thinking, that is very typical of late Bach. So back to what else could happen in his other golden sections. Well, it's usually something involving a stretto. I can think of the first fugue in the Well-Tempered Clavier. Right at the golden section, he brings in all four voices in stretto, as if to say, this is the introduction of a golden section. Soprano, followed by alto immediately, and tenor, and then the bass part. I can think of the first fugue in his works for solo violin, where for the first time the violinist plays on all four strings right in the golden section the rhythm of the fugue subject. On all four strings here, and then all four strings here. Clearly this is a special instance. But what about a golden section that doesn't occur in a fugue? Is that such a thing? Yes, clearly. Quoting again from his works for solo violin, we can see Bach employing his natural understanding of the golden section even in the composition of a single line. Here we have this language. And then the golden section is here. That's the golden section. That is remarkable. That just this vocabulary. Listen to it again. that is one of the most remarkable lines in the history of my life. The first time I learned that I knew instinctively that must have been the golden section because something, something in the way that Bach is speaking there is just different from how he's speaking in the rest of the piece. Okay, so let's say you're Bach and you've been composing fugues your whole life and you've got whether or not it's calculated in your head because you're counting the number of bar lines you draw or you've just got this natural instinct for the golden sections in a piece or probably a combination of the two, you're coming across another golden section in a fugue, and instead of cramming things in, you decide to start leaving things out. Well, this, my friend, is the most remarkable feature, I believe, of Bach's late fugues. Here, 
in the golden sections of several of Bach's late fugues, we have textures simplifying and not complicating. Instead of stretto, we have a spreading out of material. We have episodes, that is where there is no theme appearing. We have textures moving from all voices into just two. Take, for example, the B-flat minor fugue. It's a very complicated fugue where everything is coming in stretto, everything is coming in inversion, and all four voices, it's in B-flat minor. And right at the golden section, this is what happens. Here we are at the end of an entrance in the bass that's inverted, and now here's the golden section here. No themes. Three voices, not four. Simple texture, and then, then we have the stretto begin. And in this particular instance, it's a stretto of inversions. That is the first time that the stretto of inversions occurs in that particular fugue, which is BWV 897, I believe. I will put a link to that fugue in this episode's description. That was Tom Koopman playing the harpsichord, by the way. But you could see that Bach, instead of squeezing something into the golden section there, used the golden section as an anticipation by simplification of an event that was to follow. And now we could go to what I may call my favorite fugue of all time, which is actually the next fugue in Book 2 of the Wild Temper Clavier, the B major fugue, where the texture simplifies so much that in this double fugue, you no longer have any fragments of the second subject, you no longer have any fragments of the subject, and all, all you have is music in now three voices and the first instances of 16th notes happening. Here's Helmut Walcher on the harpsichord, the B major fugue. We're hearing the last fragments of the second subject trickle out. And now we're in the golden section. First 16th notes, only music, this simplified texture. And then our second fugue starts to come back. And then finally in the bass, now our first subject, and we're out of the golden section here. You, of course, won't get the full effect of the meaningfulness of these golden sections when they're isolated like this. I will have to do, you know, an entire episode devoted to these particular fugues, but we're just seeing sort of the technique that Bach is using in his late years. So let's go back and look at Fugue 14 in the Art of Fugue. Now, you really get to test your vocabulary we've learned all through this season here. Uh, we have in this 14th fugue expositions of the first, second, and third subject. Uh, that is the exposing of each theme one voice at a time in this four-voice fugue. Uh, so you do have portions of this piece that has simplified textures in that with each new exposition you have the themes coming in one voice at a time. But there is only one part of this piece outside of the expositions that has a reduced texture, and that's this section here. I think you all can hear that. Let's listen to that again. That's so remarkable. Here we have this sort of imitation, which we saw in the B-flat minor fugue. And then right here, boom, on this bar, this is two voices. And then there in the tenor, the second theme came again. That is the only part in the entire piece where the texture drops down to just two voices. It reminds me so clearly of the language of the single voice texture that we saw in that solo violin work. It reminds me of the B flat minor and the B major fugues we looked at. The point of this is that anyhow, if this section is indeed the golden ratio, 
because it certainly looks like it and feels like it. That is bar 166. So now if we use that little number there and we calculate 61.8% of the way through the piece, that implies that there are mathematically 268.6 or 269 bars. Now, Bach's fragment, what we looked at in the previous episode, breaks off at bar 240, which according to this theory alone, the theory of locating at what part would be the golden section, means that the missing fragment contains what, what is fragment X, I mentioned in the previous episode, that fragment would contain 29 bars. Okay, so what did we just do? We just looked at other golden sections throughout Bach's career. We looked at a couple golden sections right at the end of Bach's career, right around the time that he would have been composing this 14th fugue, and we sort of analyzed the golden sections in those particular fugues and saw what technique Bach was using. Then we found in the 14th fugue, in the fragment that we have of the 14th fugue, a section that struck us in a similar way as those other golden sections. And we calculated based on where that section appears in the piece, if that is indeed the golden section of a piece with a missing fragment, we calculated how many bars that missing fragment would have. Now there is another way to figure out how many bars the missing fragment would have, and that is to look at the pagination. In other words, Bach was overseeing the original print, the engraving, before he died. He was involved in setting out a certain number of pages for each fugue, and through the generous research of Gregory Butler, we know that Bach allotted six pages for this final fugue. Six. The original print breaks off at bar 233 after fulfilling five of those six pages, after filling them with very dense engraving work, very neat. And each of those five pages contains between 45 and a half and 48 bars maximum. It is very, very beautifully organized work. You could look at the original print there, everything is squeezed in there. Meaning a single page therefore couldn't really contain many more than that number of bars, 48 maximum. The original print actually lands on this cadence that is seven bars short of the fragment on which Bach penned the beginning of this fugue. So if we take those seven missing bars and we put them onto the last page, the sixth page of the six allotted pages for that fugue, that gives us a maximum, maximum of 41 bars with really, really squeezing everything in there to fulfill this pagination scheme. Now, my golden section theory shows 29 bars are missing, and this pagination scheme shows that it's really got to be less than 40. It is through this type of research that we know about how much music is missing. We have the aesthetically pleasing one, which says that that one bar which contains only two voices had to be the beautifully calculated golden section of Bach, which leaves us with only 29, 30 missing bars toward the end. Or we have the pagination scheme one, which says that since you could only squeeze in a certain number of bars to each page in the engraving, that leaves us with a maximum, maximum of 41 missing bars. So what we're saying here is we're reaching an agreement through two theories that there's really between 30 and 41 missing bars on that last fragment X, that final combination of the four subjects of the Art of Fugue. It seems like we are, though we don't have the answer, we are solving the mystery. I hasten to add here, because if I really got into every crackpot theory about Bach that exists, I'd have to devote an entire season to just debunking conspiracy. But I hasten to add this for reasons that I cannot understand popular theory of a so-called matrix, where some people, evidently very clever, literate musicians, have placed on a matrix, on a mathematical matrix, all the entrances of the previous themes in this final fugue. And through this matrix, looking at the patterns in which Bach's subjects appeared in the manuscript, they generate some insane amount of music, almost doubling the composition to fulfill the symmetry of some 
matrix. Well, I needn't tell you that this isn't how Bach composed fugues. This permutation matrix, quote-unquote, theory is spearheaded by someone named Zoltan Gönz, and again, it is one of those theories that says, look at how clever I can be, rather than look at how clever Bach was. When you look at this theory, when you look at actually how much music these people are generating by looking at a matrix, it's sort of an enigma to me with the painstaking research that people like Christoph Wolff and Gregory Butler have laid down, which clearly shows that this fugue is really missing 40 bars maximum, that people can get so carried away into reading this fugue as if it contains hidden messages that only they can decipher. Ha, huh, I guess that's exactly what conspiracy theory is. So don't fall for the matrix theory, folks. Do your own research. This is the podcast about all things JS Bob. This is the podcast about all things VIP Bob, which is JS Bob, brought to you by WTF Bob. Well, well, what am I going to do my last 15 or so minutes with you, the listener? I know I said I would talk about the music in this episode, and so far this has all been very technical. I guess I want to add one last technicality to further uncover the mystery that is the Art of Fugue, and that is the title of this fugue. Fuga a tre soggetti, Fugue for Three Subjects. Now, why would it be called Fugue for Three Subjects if indeed it is a quadruple fugue with the missing fourth part? And why is it in Italian if indeed everything else was in Latin called contrapuntus and not fuga? Well, this can simply be explained by the fact that it was Bach's son, probably, CPE, who came and added this title to that fragment on which he also scrawled where the name B-A-C-H appears in the countersubject the composer died. This was his way of possibly labeling this fragment, which I really doubt that he understood it to be a three-subject fugue, but, you know, in haste, when your father dies and he's the greatest musician in Europe... We can excuse Carl Philip Emanuel's brief squiggle. Well, thank you very much, folks, for listening. I really want to thank you for listening, seriously, because occasionally I get notes from the listeners, and those are the type of notes that keep this podcast going. I certainly get donations from you, and those are the donations that keep this podcast feasible. Thank you for, I think, over 25,000 listeners now in more than 100 countries. This is so wonderful that there's such a great body of people that are interested in debunking the myths that surround the art of fugue. Because for me, this music is really life-changing. Season two is not going to be such a giant work. Like I mentioned earlier, I'll be able to take more of your listeners' suggestions. I'll be able to put episodes out a little more casually on a little more regular basis. I don't know how to end this, really. This has been such a trip. So thank you for accompanying me on it. I'm probably going to end it maybe unfinished like the 14th fugue itself. And still, like I mentioned earlier, I don't really know if there's anything I could say about the Art of Fugue that is going to shed any light on the Art of Fugue. It reminds me of a quote from Gould, Glenn Gould, where he said on the evening of recording the Contrapuntus uh, 14, this one, he says, quote, It's the most difficult thing I've ever approached. It's, you've got to keep it going. How do you do that? There's never been anything more beautiful in all of music. I, I really, I really can't agree more with, with Gould there. there. There really is nothing more beautiful to me than this 14th contrapuntus. I mean, parts of the Art of Fugue, other parts, parts of the Well Temple Clavier, the St. Matthew Passion, the Mass in B minor, but there is something about, for me, especially the first exposition, the first theme of this 14th Fugue, which is just so heartbreakingly simple and, and beautiful. And then when the music starts picking up and you have that snaking second theme come in, 
then it's really like, wow, now we're really cooking. And that music is just pure fire. That music is inspired. It's catapulting hundreds of years in the future, past Wagner, even Charles Ivesian. I, I could think of some parts being like hearing two completely different types of music. So I'm going to change the miking here. Okay, folks, chances are, if you've got this far in the podcast, you'd pretty much follow me through hell. So I am just going to go off the cuff. Most of every episode has been carefully written down and thought out by me, but I thought it would be a nice thing to end this first season with me just sort of talking and playing on my out-of-tune piano, talking my way through this last contrapuntist to try and really just just appreciate it on a, on a different level with a sort of different production. And that'll be the end of season one. I'll take a few months off. And then I'll be back with a new format for the forthcoming episodes. The 14th contrapuntist starts out with this. Now that theme, like we said, starts out with that same rising fifth that the whole Art of Fugue begins with. But it is more simple. Somehow. And whenever you have a multiple fugue of Bach, or a compound fugue, that is a double or triple fugue, especially in the triple fugues, you begin to start thinking of the Trinity, at least Bach, a mind like that when you have three subjects that are equal. Uh, that's almost impossible to divorce from his religious mind, these three aspects of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is definitely God the Father here. This is a perfect interval. Whenever you see a fugue subject that has a perfect interval in, in a compound fugue like that, it's very difficult to divorce it from the idea that this isn't God. <laughs> so here we have God the Father. And it's answered. is the third voice that's the alto voice there but what I love about this beauty here is that when it enters you don't know if it's one or two voices because it's tied this is this D here is actually the combination of the tenor and the alto so only in retrospect do you have ah it's three voices fourth voice that's the end of our exposition and immediately in the bass an inversion see no time to do anything else and then a stretto in the tenor so we had as soon as the soprano voice completes Inverted bass, stretto tenor. Now adding the other voices. And now we have this wonderful canonic writing in the upper voices and this 
lower voices, so we have this canon, canonic at least. The canon still goes on a bit. from these thirds. There's the bass entrance, we can hear it. inversion in the tenor over this music and the bass and the soprano sing in stretto the middle voices, the inner voices, the tenor and the alto will sing in inversion, stretto the theme. It's very difficult to hear, but it's there. This voice from the soprano, quite expressive. And here, inversion in the soprano and regular in the alto. And now time for the most heartbreaking music. this cadence in G minor and then and as that is going on this this sort of episodic material really reminds me of the last fugue in the one of the Walter Bukavir, and it has these episodes that are completely, completely diatonic to contrast this insanely chromatic subject. So we have something similar here at the end of yet another exquisite tome of counterpoint, and then the bass. Actually, that's the bass and the tenor singing. The tenor comes in inversion. Here's the bass in regular, and then the tenor. So. 
tenor. Alto. snuck in there I didn't even have time to mention it notice the music is getting extremely intense because we're just in time for our second theme to come so I'll play that just toward the end there Oh, this, this heartbreaking dissonance of the major seventh there, the major seventh chord there, as soon as this snaking second theme winds its way into the fugue. Now, this being God the Father, we can obviously identify this. If we are going to go down this theological route, we are going to identify this as obviously the Holy Spirit snaking, descending upon the people like tongues, right? We know this sort of theology is not completely made up. It's seen very clearly in Bach's uh, organ mass. That's part three of the Klavierübung, which is yet another episode to come. I'm just thinking aloud now. This theme is introduced in the alto. This theme was introduced in the bass, and the B, A, C, H theme will be introduced in the tenor. So I wonder if that meant that on fragment X, the Art of Fugue missing subject was introduced in the soprano, but we may never know. So the alto. Now with the second theme, so completely different from the first theme. Here's the bass. You're here, I'm bringing out the Holy Spirit theme, as it were, in the soprano, and we'll have it in the bass, God the Father theme. There. This makes it a true double fugue. Another combination here in the inner voices. The tenor now has the God the Father theme. The alto with the Holy Spirit. Now, here, this section. That was the section I was labeling as the golden section. We hear this beautiful imitation in the upper two voices. 
And then in the left hand, it's just a walking bass line walking its way through the circle of fifths. And Cain sing nicely in F major, the relative major, to D minor, where we started this whole adventure. So let's listen to that again. This bar there, adjusted in two voices. And God the Holy Spirit now entering in the tenor in this beautiful F major. And you can bet that it will come with God the Father in F major also. Here it is. We hear it from the golden section. Now you can see we are quite clearly coming out of this diatonic world of F major, B flat major, and we are really going back deep into the chromatics because we are about to introduce this chromatic BACH subject. Now the most dramatic Holy Spirit entrance in the bass. stuff to unpack there. This is over a stretto of God the Father in the two upper voices. Meanwhile, while those three voices are occupied with that, we have the most active tenor line you are bound to see ever in any fugue. the same voice that voice there which just went down to this low D here went all the way up to this B flat and then jumps this wicked interval of a, a minor ninth this A flat to the G I mean it, you have to imagine singing this and how, how dramatic what an, an intense I mean that just doesn't really get more dramatic than that supposed to say about this moment in music history when Bach starts spelling his name explicitly I mean there's really nothing to, nothing to be said I mean this is just the most thrilling moment after this intense cadence after that intense after that intense jumping tenor voice the stretto of the holy of God the Father in the upper voices and this in the bass and all of a sudden he starts spelling his name like this. I mean, it's moments like this in art 
that have the power to make men happy. Seriously. Now soprano. Spelling Bach upside down in the alto here. He starts spelling. That's the inversion. It's the same four notes that are the cluster, but now he's going upside down and E flat major there on the H of the B. Now there's a Bach stretto, B A C H in the soprano and B A C H in the bass. We can hear that. Now I'm just looking at the page here, and I all I see is just a mess of accidentals. Looks like uh, Scriabin's music or something. Now that's a big moment there. He does another B A C H in the bass, but now the H instead of landing on E flat major is landing on A flat major. Now I believe that anyone who has played this fugue knows this moment quite distinctly when you spell B-A-C-H in the bass and when you land on the H, you're playing A-flat major. Now look at that, A-flat major in terms of D minor. It's the furthest interval away, it's a tritone away from D and it's, it's the opposite mode. It goes from minor to major. So this is, this is just quite an intense moment. C H in A flat major and then followed by a D flat and a C cluster in the right hand. Now that's where the original print ends, but Bach has seven additional bars tying. God the Father in the left hand with God the Holy Spirit in the alto voice and B A C H in the tenor voice. God the Father in the bass. B A C H. That was the triple fugue there. And then that's where it ends. That's the end. You can you can sort of imagine. You can imagine maybe it going. To a minor, perhaps. You can imagine it staying in D minor. I mean, who, who really knows? I'm thinking of a Gustav Landhart interview where he says that he used to. He says that he doesn't believe in miracles, but he's not quite sure because he'll cover up a passage uh, 
linking, say, bar X to bar Z, and he'll ask the student to fill in bar Y to see if the student can figure out how Bach went from point A to point C, or I just said X to Z, whatever, and no student can do it. Gustav Leonhardt thinks that that's, that's a miracle. He says with Handel or with other composers, you might always get the answer. But for us to not even be able to figure out, not even be able to predict where Bach is going to, what sharp turn Bach is going to take right after that moment. Where's he going to go? You know, or is he going to do something like this? I mean, it's really, 